Welcome to the Yimbyist Podcast. The Yimbyist Podcast is brought to you by Yimby Eugene Springfield. Yimbyes is a nonprofit devoted to making housing more affordable for all residents of our cities. Yimby stands for Yes in My Backyard because we stand for the idea of welcoming diversity into our neighborhoods across all spectrums, including race, socioeconomic status, and housing types. We'll be discussing housing politics and policy on this podcast from a wide array of perspectives. So if you know someone who might want to make their voice heard, please reach out to us. Yimbyes at gmail.com. That's Y-I-M-B-Y-E-S at gmail.com. Or visit our page, yimbyes.org. My name is Daniel Ivey. I'm the Yimby Eugene Springfield Board President. Uh, I'm joined today with Stephanie Jennings, Manager of Housing Opportunities for the City of Eugene, and Chris Wig, who wears a variety of hats. So I, I, I want to kind of start by um, getting into your backgrounds a little bit, learn about you know how you kind of came to be um, you know in the positions that you're in when it comes to housing politics and policy. So uh, so yeah, without further ado, let, let me know what uh, how you how you kind of came to be where you're at. Well, I became a housing advocate kind of by accident. That when I was first coming up in the Democratic Party, say in around the year 2011, 2012, my first real project after I got through my internship on the coordinated campaign was recruiting young people to join the party. And I worked with um, a name you'll hear several times on this podcast, probably a man by the name of Kevin Cronin, who's an amazing housing advocate, brought me in and that we were working to recruit young people into the Democratic Party. And when you are an advocate of young people, you become an advocate of renters by default because the biggest problems that young people, especially young people in a university climate experience, are oftentimes housing problems. And so a thing that we just kept running into was folks, students who had been no cause evicted, students who the rent was so high they had to decide between whether they were going to pay their rent or buy textbooks. And even one year we had had a candidate for the Associated Students of the University of Oregon, the student government. The presidential candidate had a story about how he had to sleep in his car and on people's couches because he couldn't afford a place to live in Eugene because he wanted to buy his textbooks and be an adequate student. And so that that, those kind of powerful stories is how I got into housing advocacy. And through that process, I ran for city council in Eugene in 2016. I did not win, but my idea was cited by the Register Guard as the best idea of all of the campaigns of any level that year. And it was to extend the length of time that would, somebody could be no cause evicted from the current 30 days to 90 days. And the legislature did me one better and has pretty much um, done away with no cause evictions after the first year. We can talk about that a little bit later. And that's House Bill 608, right? Yeah. It is House Bill. We've, we've Senate about, Bill 608. Or Senate Bill, yeah. And then on top of that, I uh, serve as a, I was recruited by John Van Landingham, who's been on the podcast, to join the City of Eugene Rental Housing Code Advisory Committee. And a couple years later, I got bumped up to the full housing policy board. And now I serve as the chair of the Renter Protection Task Team for the Housing Policy Board. And a quick disclaimer, um, the opinions and ideas expressed on this podcast, they are my own and they don't represent the Democratic Party of Lane County, the City of Eugene, the Housing Policy Board, mm -hmm. or any of those other groups of people. I, I would love to have the authority to speak for them unilaterally, but I do not have it at this time. Yeah, that's the kind of the advantage of, uh, you know, I, I wear a few different hats. They're in a slightly, I think, less... Uh, 
time commitment than yours, but um, I because I have Yimby Eugene Springfield, that the people can just kind of know that the opinions are following through that direction. But uh, but yeah, Stephanie, how? Um, I, I mean, I, I'm sure you have a, kind of a similar um, you know story, maybe so to speak, about how you kind of came into housing and, and homelessness advocacy. Yeah. So. So I've been working on housing issues for over 20 years at this point in time. And, uh, and really, uh, the sort of reason why I became interested in housing is um, just uh, the fundamental impact that it has on people's lives. It really is the foundation for everyone uh, in our community and uh, really creates the stability uh, for economic success, for success in school, uh, for health. Uh, and so for all of those reasons, uh, it's uh, such a critical issue and one that our, our country uh, continues to struggle with in many significant ways. Uh, so, uh, so it's incredibly varied and complex and there's many many different people that are involved in the uh, housing uh, systems and um, so there's there's always a lot to work on yeah I think um, one of the things that uh, you know there's a, there's a lot of different conversations happening around housing and homelessness right now um, I'm reading a book called evicted which is incredibly good it talks about it basically delves into um you know one specific city but follows kind of eight different case studies and it really sort of highlights the cyclical nature of it but also the fact that there are i mean the stories that they follow it's like somebody struggling they follow a landlord they follow different types of people struggling for different reasons they follow um the the eviction the company that comes in and moves people's things out of their house when they are evicted mm -hmm. and uh, it's very um eye-opening uh, to to hear and, and if you if you listen to podcasts regularly, I mean, this is, you know, um, still this this particular podcast is still getting traction, obviously, but there's a lot of big name podcasts out there that are dealing with it. Um, you know, Malcolm Gladwell's uh, Revisionist History podcast just had a huge um, uh, a huge section on uh on it, uh, I was listening last night. They've got the Built for Zero collaborative on there, which talks about how one of the big issues with housing and homelessness in general is the fact that um, there are all these disparate different programs and we have trouble as cities getting those programs to kind of talk to each other, you know. Mm -hmm. um, we wouldn't know anything about that in Eugene. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, they said that the cities that have had the most success really try to um, almost build like a profile for each individual homeless or unhoused person and really try to get at the reason why they are unhoused so that they can figure out what how their unique you know population in that city is um, you know what, what is causing homelessness the most so that they can focus their programs on that but then that leads to like a, almost like a you know how many people are going to want to be on that registry you know i feel like a lot of the people certainly the ones that are voluntarily unhoused um, don't want to be on the registry for various reasons even though it's a very small percentage of the population um, but um, but I, I think that that cities by and large when they implement that just they get people signing up for it left and right so so i mean it's interesting housing is um it's, a, it's an issue where the federal government is involved, states are involved, counties are involved, local jurisdictions are involved. Um, and of course, we're experiencing a lot of issues today that we didn't really see 15, 20 yeah. years ago. So, um, so you have all of these shifts that are happening in 
the role of the federal, state, local governments, and then also trying to respond to uh, an environment where um, there's a lot of pretty rapid change. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, so I definitely see a lot of sort of shifts that are happening um, there's there's a lot of work happening at the state level, uh, which you know we've definitely taken it into account as we've thought in particular about the experience of renters, and then of course kind of figuring out what we do locally. Um, the housing policy board uh, really started uh, last year with a goal of of hearing from renters in our community and understanding their experiences. Uh, and so, um, so staff worked with uh, Housing Policy Board to develop a survey uh, that really wasn't intended to be a scientific sample, but it was intended to create a, a way for people to respond easily on their own time uh, to provide their perspectives. Uh, and then there was a series of listening sessions uh, and, um, you know, I thought Chris might want to share his perspective on the survey and listening sessions, and I can talk a little bit more about the results. Yeah, no, thanks. That's an excellent segue. I, I want to spend most of the time here talking about the renter protections uh, thing. I think that's our main topic of discussion today. It's certainly what you guys are um, kind of uh, experts on. So, yeah, uh, talk to us about kind of how that process went, Chris. Well, I think that it's worth pointing out that while community advocates have been doing outreach to tenants since I got involved seven years ago. That this is the first time that I know of that um, the city of Eugene has sanctioned and supported this kind of neighbor-to-neighbor, tenant-to-tenant outreach. And I say tenant-to-tenant, I, you know, I'm a homeowner now. When I joined the Housing Policy Board, I was a renter. And that our team captain for these Uh, listening sessions is the best tenant advocate I know of in all of Eugene, a man by the name of Kevin Cronin, and that we held four of them. One at the University of Oregon with a primarily student audience, but there were also just community members who were non-students present as well. And then three in concert with neighborhood associations, uh, which are very very interesting, uh, you know, if you're familiar with city politics about some of the neighborhood associations coming around to be more uh, open to and inclusive of the point of view of renters. Mm-hmm. And that those three neighborhood associations were, of course, the Whitaker Community Council, that those folks have been gangbusters forever. But also, surprisingly, Jefferson Westside, and then, um, which a really cool, another really cool thing was that the recently reformed Active Bethel citizens really, um, they took the initiative to bring us. And so originally, the idea was to do the three in Jefferson Westside Whitaker, which are two of the you know most full of tenant neighborhoods, and then also the university, and that Bethel wanted in on the action. So we were able to have those four sessions, and... They were places where tenants could come and share their story with the members of the task team and that we learned a lot from people. Um, For example, if you go to the University of Oregon and walk into pretty much any room and say, raise your hand if you have been no cause evicted or someone that you know has had their life negatively affected by no cause eviction and that I would bet you I'm not allowed to bet because my agency runs a gambling program. So I feel very confident that every single hand in the room will go up, probably including the professor. And so no cause evictions, I think, are one of the major number one problems that tenants face 
And fortunately, Senate Bill 608 should make some progress in that regard. But we also got a lot of really great ideas about what are some ways that tenants and landlords can work together to better communicate uh, the rights of tenants, but also their responsibilities. And so some of the best ideas that came out of that in that area, and that we'll talk about the survey a little bit more in a moment where, you know, why this is so important, but some of the ideas that came out of that that were actually suggested by just community members who came to the survey, not, you know, they weren't plants, they're people who we didn't know when they showed up were having a system where landlords can communicate that information to tenants at the time that the lease is executed. So just like folks have to sign a disclosure about lead paint, they have to sign disclosures about that this is a thing that landlords could communicate to tenants at the execution of the lease. Um, a college student came up with that idea. And so that's, I think, very a very interesting way to communicate that info. But also, one great idea that came from Bethel was working with the high school in their life skills program to provide education to graduating seniors or maybe some non-traditional students or maybe in concert with CTE, people going into the trades, but that will communicate about how to be a renter, how to pay your rent on time, how to have a budget so that you can pay your rent on time, how to upkeep your property, what is your responsibility and what is your landlord's responsibility. And if your landlord falls short, how do you redress that grievance in a way that is pro-social and appropriate and productive instead of just complaining about it on Facebook or right. reacting negatively and getting evicted. So yeah. that those were a couple of the really cool ideas that came out of it that I thought, you know, they, I mean, saying them out loud, they sound kind of basic, but the fact is that, that those things are not happening right now. And so yeah. I think it's a big deal. Yeah, I, um, I have the opportunity to get out through a program called Junior Achievement to teach uh, financial awareness in, in the schools. And it... Um, it seems like the 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 class that I teach that gets the biggest response every time. Well, I don't want to say regardless of grade level, you have to be a little older before I start teaching this class. But it's just the class about credit and just like understanding what a credit report is, trying to demystify it for people. And I think that the same can be said for the lease agreement. There can be a lot of work done to help demystify that for people so that they're actually knowing what they can, what their rights are, what they should be reading. But you know, before just kind of signing these these blanket you know huge documents. So. Um, that's awesome that uh, that you know that the that that much information came out of those listening sessions. I think that um, there's this understanding, I think, of the common person that like the city has all of these resources and they should be like pulling this objective data from all these different sources and things like that. But the fact is, the city council only has the information that uh, we're really able to kind of help them uh, gather, plus what the city is able to help put together. And obviously, you know, the resources aren't uh, limitless when it comes to what the city can provide to city council. Um, so uh, so let's talk a little bit about Senate Bill um, 608. Um, I, uh, I know that it gave a lot of protections to, um, to renters in general. Um, what, uh, so I mean, given, given what we have now compared to what we didn't have before, where are some opportunities to, to kind of continue you know, pushing for, for renter protections or for um, you know, policy around that? So, I mean, I think, um Right now, with uh, the new requirements through Senate Bill 608, you know, there's really kind of a shift to what is called good cause evictions. And mm -hmm. so there's still uh, reasons uh, that landlords can use to 
uh, uh, to evict. And, and so there's going to be a lot of kind of seeing how that process turns out um, and how it works and implementation. Um, the other sort of piece is notice, uh, which is very helpful uh, when folks are trying to plan for a change of residence. And so that's a, another aspect of it that, um, you know, is definitely uh, important. The, um, you know, in terms of thinking about uh, what are additional uh, supports, uh, that's really been the subject of the conversations of the Renter Protections Task Team and the work that we're trying to do to kind of think about what uh, they would focus on in uh, uh, over the next year. Um, there was also a council discussion about the results of the Renner survey, and that took place on March 13th. Okay. Uh, so if anyone is interested in uh, hearing that conversation, they can go to the city's website and view the webcast and the materials from that, uh, which included a summary of the um, of the survey responses and so over 850 people uh, responded to the survey wow. and uh, and and reported a really wide range of experiences in the community um, I tend to kind of think about the these issues in five categories I think about affordability, so how much are people paying uh, and, and how does that affect the other things that they need to spend money on, um, what units are available. We know we have a low vacancy rate. Uh, we know there's a lot of demand for rental housing and that there's increasing demand for rental housing across every income group and age group in the community. This is not just one part of our community that needs rentals. We're seeing this pretty much across the board for a, a pretty significant variety of reasons. Um, access issues, you know, we continue to see um, uh, people coming and uh, both through the survey and through other means and talking about uh, differences in experiences based on their own personal characteristics. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, so the city does have uh, uh, a way to um, help folks that have experienced uh, discrimination in some way, shape, or form. And we work with a state agency called Fair Housing Council of Oregon uh, to uh, help uh, folks understand what they can do in those cases. Um, but we um, did see a number of reports related to that in the survey. Um, we also saw a number of concerns about the quality of housing and mm -hmm. the condition of the housing that people are living in. Um, this is another area where the city does have a local program. We have a rental housing code, uh, and uh, it is it does start with the resident reaching out to their landlord and uh, trying to get the issue addressed, uh, and then if they're not. Uh, receiving a response and it's uh, an area that is covered by uh, the rental housing code, uh, they can re request assistance from the city. Um, and then the last really is stability. And this is this is where the kind of no cause evictions come into play mm -hmm. um, so that folks can uh, really plan for changes and also you know have more chances to stay in the same part of the community if that's what they desire to do. So, you know, as we kind of look at where are the opportunities for us to do more, 
Um, definitely the ideas around how do we make sure that every renter has um, a basic level of knowledge about what it mm -hmm. means to rent and what their responsibilities are is really important. And, and then the, the other side of that is, is working with landlords as well. And, you know, definitely with the changes in state law, it's kind of a perfect time to do a lot of that education because there's, there's a lot of changes. There's a lot to educate people about. Exactly, exactly. Um, another area, you know, we've heard a lot of concerns about, um, about deposits, about fees at the front end. You know, state, um, tenant landlord law is controlled at the state level. So it's um, figuring out what local jurisdictions can actually do mm, is not completely clear. And, and there's definitely some litigation that's happening across the state um, to around some different issues. So, so it's still kind of in the process of being sorted out and you know, going back to the what's the local role, role, what's the state's role in some of these issues. There is definitely uh, interplay there as it relates to renter uh, protections and requirements. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, Portland has been, I think, aggressive in a good way about um, passing city ordinances about things that are not explicitly referenced in state law. There's, you know, there's. John could explain this, Van Landingham could explain this so much better than me. But basically there's two kind of worldviews. One is that because the subject is governed by state law, that the cities don't, there's not, they don't have a lot of wiggle room. And the other opinion is that what anything that is not explicitly alliterated in the state law is fair game for the cities. Portland has taken that position and that they have made some pretty bold strides in terms of relocation assistance. Right now they are, have a pending ordinance that I think is gonna pass that um, Commissioner Udaley has championed about um, screening criteria for applicants because people who have low credit scores or may have a, um, a criminal conviction of a certain type aren't able to get housing in a tight market. And so that the city of Portland has been very responsive to those kind of concerns. Uh, Eugene has not done that. Um, you know, Eugene has not chosen to go ahead with that kind of stuff and that, you know, the um, right now Eugene is still in the identification phase. But in the area where Eugene is interfacing with state law um, around the ADUs, I mean, Eugene has, you know, basically taken an intractable position of, um, I mean, you know, this is the YMBS podcast, right? Like the city of Eugene in a at the Land Use Board of Appeals is defending the NIMBY position, that we should be able to have these restrictive rules about the siting and placement of ADUs, even when the chief sponsor of the bill, Julie Fahey, representative from West Eugene, and I personally went to the city council meeting and testified and said, this is not the intent of the legislature. So I don't know if Eugene is going to go there. Like, I don't, I think politically that you know, there are some benefits to having a five-member versus an eight-member council, and that this is one of them, is that it's a lot easier to get two people to agree with you to take a bold step than to convince three counselors and maybe the mayor or four counselors. So, right. you know, I, I think that that, um, that that is kind of the, there's some politics around that. But one thing, going back to the survey, I thought was really, really um, surprising to everybody who read it, um, staff, volunteers, counselors, everybody, 
was the number of people who reported that, and again, this is a self-report, so it's not scientific, but that perceived that they had been discriminated against when applying for a housing unit. It was, I mean, it was 30%. Um, it was, I mean, it's a very, a very high number of people who perceive that. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, that tells me that there are, you know, there's a great unmet, and that, you know, this for cases of discrimination, the city contracts with the Fair Housing Council says almost 30% of respondents felt they had been discriminated against while searching or renting. And that that, you know, whether that is, uh, we didn't drill that down to, is that because you're a member of a protected class, what protected class, and so on and so forth. It didn't, the point of the survey wasn't to go that deep, but that people feel as, it sounds to me like people feel like they're not being heard or seen. And so one of the goals of these listening sessions, and that I certainly hope, um, you know, getting a bunch of people into a room to talk about how can we make the rental market better and not from, you know, an industry conference where better means the landlords can make more money, that that is an incredible thing. And so I hope that we can keep the conversation going and give people places to go where they can be seen and heard and where their stories uh, can be told and that it can be affirmed that people have worth and value and that, you know, that it, it is hard. It's yeah. really hard for people. And, it, and it's, it, I think that, that that reminds me of the quote that um, that you actually brought to my attention um, that uh, Tina Kotek uh, said regarding House Bill 2001, House Speaker Tina Kotek, when someone says renters are somehow not as serious about their neighborhoods, I just think that's not true. And, I, you know, I think that it gets to this idea of like renters are like an other, or they're like a different type of person that like doesn't have the same motivations or the same feelings. And it's like, there's, they're, they're, they're still human beings. They still deserve the same levels of protection that, that, that we all do. And, uh, and trying to, to get to that point where the city recognizes that I think is a really important step. I mean, renters for the first time ever, well, I actually don't know if it's for the first time ever, but they are 51%, right. Of, of Springfield, um, population now. So, I mean, now, that they're in the majority hopefully there can be you know we can move the needle more in that kind of direction um. well and i would just say i mean i would say as a as a matter of city policy i mean we recognize every resident as a member of this community i mean the city has a commitment to human rights a long-standing human rights commission and regardless of whether somebody is, owns their home rents their home or doesn't have any home at all they are um, really recognized as uh, a person and that should have a basic set of human rights. And that, is, that has always been the city's commitment to these issues. I think the challenge is, is figuring out in, in how we implement our housing approach, how do we help people to have the housing opportunities and to recognize that, you know, before, Almost everybody rents before they become a homeowner. Right. And so, mm -hmm. so to me, part of this is how can we help people who are renting, if that's where they want to be, that that's fine. But if they're trying to eventually become a homeowner, how can we help them to, to get to that place? And part of that, having stable rent mm -hmm. and a, a stable place to live really gives them the opportunity to save for homeownership. And yeah. I, know, I know a lot of young people 
are struggling because I think they would I think they would love to be able to mm -hmm. to be able to have a home that they really could call their own but are not able to do that right now. Yeah, and the, and the fact that there can be even gradations within the rental situation. It's like you start off renting you know, a one bedroom and a less desirable situation. And then you move into sort of a nice thing with a homeowner, the idea of sort of the, the quote unquote starter house um, and then moving into something nicer. We think of, we think about that more in terms of home ownership, but in, but it exists for renters as well. And so it's not necessarily always about, okay, can we transition them to a home that they own, but can we transition them to a more stable, more secure kind of environment? So. Absolutely. And you know, when we are also seeing now, um, we have a growing set of older uh, people in our community, and we're seeing more older uh, adults who are switching from being homeowners back to renters. Mm -hmm. And so, and these are folks who you know really are—they're um, looking for a little bit less maintenance, uh, something that's easier for them to care for. And less but, area. Um, but they, you know, they have been homeowners, and so. So I think I think we have to sort of maybe expand our perception of, of who renters are, mm -hmm. um, because it really does cut across uh, everyone. Yeah. Well, and I think Daniel, you described a moment ago, uh, you know, a continuum of renting from a, like a over time, and that I think that it is also helpful to think of, you know, home housing issues on a continuum, but in just you know in a point in time, mm -hmm. where on maybe on one side you have you own your home, it's paid off, um, you know, you're just paying your property taxes, your mortgage is paid and all that. And then on the far other side, you have folks who are sleeping rough. And that everywhere in between is, I mean, it's not housing and affordable housing and renter protection and homelessness are not separate issues. And one of the things that's really great about the, having the housing policy board meeting together um, on a lot of these different issues. You've got the TAC report, the housing tools and strategies, is I think that um, decision makers in Eugene are starting to recognize that housing, homelessness, that these are not separate buckets, that they are all in the same area because, you know, with the rental protection, one of the reasons this is so important is that, you know, I like to think of it, you know, if you cut yourself, um, if, you, if you are cut or injured, and that you go to the emergency room, the first thing that the doctor is gonna do, right, is stop the bleeding. That before we can repair the damage, before we can build on that, we have to stop the bleeding. And that all of these strategies that the city of Eugene and the county and the state are undertaking to house more people aren't gonna matter if the people who they house are just replaced on the streets by new people who become homeless. Mm -hmm. And so keeping people in the housing that they have, imperfect or not, and that making the quality of that housing better through community agreements like the Rental Housing Code, I think is so essential. And that the Rental Housing Code before, in 2000, was it 2017 that it was made permanent? Before 2017, the Rental Housing Code was on a sunset and that folks fought tooth and nail to keep that on a sunset or to make the fee less mm -hmm. or, you know, I mean, the most basic thing the, how, the rental housing code for every the way that it works, uh, I, I could we should get Rochelle in here to talk about this. I could talk about this for days because I think it's such a great program. But essentially, the way that it works is that the landlords, um, if you have a rental unit, you pay a fee of ten dollars per month, and that that goes to pay for this um, program of the rental housing code, where there is a set of um, habitability standards, and that if those standards are not met, 
and there is a mechanism of redress. Now, all of those standards are in the state landlord-tenant law, but the way that you would redress them if you lived in Springfield, for example, is you would have to go to court against your landlord, which people who rent, most of them do not have time to go to court and or pay for a lawyer or bone up and represent themselves and that kind of thing. So the city of Eugene is doing a great service and it costs $10 a year per unit. And that people, folks had the gall to say, well, I, the tenants are just paying for it. I'm going to raise the rent by, by 10 bucks a year. Like, yeah, raise the fee, make it 12 bucks a year. So I'm paying $1 a month to be protected. Like that's like the best investment of my renter dollars out of the entire rent, right? Like it, the whole debate was absurd. And it's this idea about, you know, on some level, and, and again, this happens to very, this happens very few times because the vast vast majority of landlords, just like of all people and all businesses are good and honest people who don't, you know, they don't maintain unhabitable rental properties, right? Like that's not, nobody decided, hey, I'm going to be a landlord so that I can, you know, have my, the, my house be dilapidated that I'm renting out to some college kid. Nobody decided to do that, right? That's right. not how it really works. And the really cool thing about the rental housing code, last thing about it, is the point of it is not one of the things against it as well. Nobody's been fined for violating the rental housing code in X amount of years. Well, that's because it's effective in terms of mediating the dispute mm -hmm. and bringing the person into compliance. And that the goal isn't to be punitive or punish people. The goal is to provide quality housing to everybody in our community. And mm -hmm. so it's, um, I mean, you can tell I'm fired up about it. I spent a lot of time working on it. And it's, I mean, it's just a wonderful program. But people didn't even know it existed until they started to do more um, community outreach and advertising the program in 2017. And now, you know, this fall, if you know you're, any of your listeners are interested and want to reach out, we're gonna can we canvas. Um, the goal is to canvas all of the folks who move into the student neighborhoods with information about the rental housing code to help um, get them informed about their rights and responsibilities, so that they you know can be informed and active members of the community. So that's you know one cool thing that's coming up, and there are groups. Um, that are participating in that housing spectrum in all kind all of the different areas. And the last pitch that I'll give you is there's a new um, organization that is in the process of forming to support tenants called the Springfield Eugene Tenant Association. Mm -hmm. And that they're um, one of the projects of that tenant association is to work with community organizers to distribute information, but also putting together a, a hotline that folks can call with their concerns and you know, because when if you experience an uh, issue with your housing, like housing is, I mean, if you think of the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Mm -hmm. How, like, shelter is the base, like, that is the base upon which all of your, you know, other needs are met. It's mm -hmm. one, one of those, like, food, water, shelter, breathable air. And so, you know, that it's, it's scary that, and having some having somebody that you can call that may, may not have all the answers but can at least point you in the right direction, I think is a wonderful service to the community. And that there's folks that are working on that um, on that issue right now. That's awesome. Yeah, I appreciate the, the plug there. And do you happen to know the date for the next um, Springfield Eugene Tenant Association training? I was just trying to look it up. But um, anyway, we can come back to that. But just in general, 
um, we can we can put that in the show notes as well. Um, but they, they are doing they're uh, holding those trainings for people. Um, uh, Lori Haber and her coworker Elliot have been running those. Uh, Lori was on the podcast as well. Actually, Josh Caraco was also on the podcast uh, at one point, um, uh, just giving uh, you know some plugs for CETA and talking about uh, one of the city council meetings that we had uh, a while back here. Um, but uh, to kind of close things out, do you have? Um, uh, oh, uh, the the training is uh, six eleven at five thirty. Is that tomorrow? It is. Oh, it is tomorrow. Okay, great. Yeah, so that's tomorrow. Um, probably uh, we might have this up in time, but probably not. So anyway, that'll be in the past. There'll be more trainings coming up. Um, is there anything that the two of you can think of that people, uh, listeners, uh, or uh, you know, friends of UMB Eugene Springfield might be able to to do to um, you know continue to advocate for rental protections or um, the rental community in uh, in any way? Well, I just want to make sure folks are aware that anyone can receive information about the Housing Policy Board. Uh, So there's information on the city's website and a way that you can sign up uh, to receive the the monthly uh, emails and agendas for the Housing Policy Board uh, meetings. And, um, And then, you know, of course, you know, there will be uh, more discussion uh, as the Housing Policy Board works through these issues and develops recommendations uh, for the city. Um, and then, of course, there's also other planning processes that you know are underway. And so uh, there's many planning processes uh, that are happening through uh, through the, the land use side. And so there's information on the city's website. Uh, on the affordable housing side, every five years we do a planning process called the Consolidated Plan for Affordable Housing and Community Development, which helps guide the use of federal funds. And so we will be uh, doing outreach uh, for that process in the fall. And you know, while we don't receive a, a huge amount of federal dollars, uh, these uh, projects have been used to support the development of thousands of units of affordable housing and support our rehabilitation programs. And so it is uh, definitely an important resource for our community. Cool. Yeah, awesome. Well, my answer, as you would expect coming from the chair of a political party, is a political answer. And that that is as follows. If you live in Eugene, the best thing that you can do are two things. One is that you can go to your neighborhood association and if you are a renter, definitely go. If you are a homeowner who knows renters, bring them with you and don't settle for less. That there's been some changes in the attitude of some of the neighborhood associations over the last three years, but the neighborhood associations in Eugene at least as of a couple years ago, were the main like NIMBY strongholds of the entire city. And so if you want to take the fight to the man, that's where you go. Go to your neighborhood association and speak out and let them know that renters are part of this community and that they deserve a seat at the table. Also, contact your city councilor and express the same sentiment. Um, that, you know, it is, I, I think it's pretty obvious that the city council got rolled in the decision about the CET where they took less money 
and they agreed to actually pay the developers taxes for them. So not only was it not a tax credit, they're literally paying, the city of Eugene is paying the taxes of the wealthiest and most powerful lobby in the entire city because they showed up to, they showed up to the meeting and that other citizens did not. People who support responsible, you know, I mean, responsible development and the fact that maybe the city of Eugene should not pay the taxes for the wealthiest and best connected lobby in the city didn't show up at the meeting, so they got rolled. And so don't let that happen again. Uh, if you live in Springfield, call your city councilor, email them, call the mayor, email her, and tell them to come to the table that the city of Springfield has chosen not to participate in the Housing Policy Board for several years now, and that uh, when I asked a city councilor who will remain nameless, why isn't the city of Springfield at the table at the Housing Policy Board? That person's answer to me, and I quote, what's in it for us? What's in it for us? That is the attitude that at least one, and probably more than one of your counselors have if you are a Springfield resident, so let them know what's up. And in Springfield, we have the added benefit, I live in Springfield, I love it, and that we have the added benefit of the counselors have to live in their ward, but they run citywide. So anybody who can hear my voice right now and agrees with what I'm saying can contact all six counselors and the mayor and let them know how you feel about it. Awesome. That's uh, strong and impassioned words, and I, I appreciate um, both of your opinions on the podcast today. And uh, I think that we uh, we did a lot to, to get the word out about, uh, about rental protection. So I appreciate you coming on. Thank you, Daniel. Thanks for having us.